from the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. What is an impeachable offense? Congress is going to hear today from a panel of constitutional experts about that question. We have our own expert, Richard Primus of the University of Michigan, to help us sort through all of the issues. Then we're going to talk about college dropouts and what one author calls a financial scandal that keeps them in debt and without opportunity. That's all next on Detroit Today, right after the news from NPR. It's Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you have joined us. Congress is going to continue its impeachment inquiry today, but not with witnesses to the alleged missteps of President Trump. Instead, they're going to hear from four constitutional experts about what impeachable behavior looks like and what it doesn't. They're going to talk about what the founders said about executive power and responsibility, and they'll discuss how the political process bears on impeachment. That will all get started at 10 a.m., and we're going to air it right here on WDET. But first, we also have our own constitutional expert to weigh in on those questions in advance of the hearings. Richard Primus is a constitutional law professor and historian at the University of Michigan. Richard, welcome back to Detroit Today. Happy to be here. Yes. Uh, So last time we talked was just as the House Intelligence Committee was beginning its hearings in this impeachment inquiry. So what have been your big takeaways so far in this process? What have we heard that maybe changed our minds or changed your mind about uh, where we should be thinking about the impeachment inquiry at at this point? I suppose mostly that the president is even more impeachable than we might have thought at the beginning. The hearings over the course of many days produced many hours of testimony demonstrating pretty clearly that the president and people working for the president conditioned things that the Ukrainian president really needed, like a visit to the White House, which would bolster his international standing, and military aid, which his country needs in its war against Russia, on publicly announcing um, investigations designed to make the president's domestic political enemies look bad. That is... um, That is impeachable behavior, both because it's a form of bribery, that is to say it is asking for a favor Mm -hmm. in return for an official act. Congress had already appropriated the military aid. It's supposed to be released to them, and the president wants a personal favor to get it done. And it's a high crime and misdemeanor, which is one of the other things that the Constitution says is impeachable, Mm -hmm. because it is an attempt to corrupt the use of the president's foreign affairs power by using it not in the national interest, but in his private political interest in a way that even compromises 
our national security interests. The parade of witnesses who testified was really pretty impressive. A lot of people who are longtime civil servants, uh, people from the military, people from the diplomatic corps, people from the civil service, people in long-term nonpartisan positions, um, some of whom had been uh, partisan Republicans beforehand, people like Dr. Fiona Hill, for example, um, whose testimony paints the picture pretty clearly. Um, yesterday and Monday, the majority and minority of the House Intelligence Committee released their reports saying how they read the evidence, because not surprisingly, the majority of the committee, which is Democrats and the minority of the committee, which is Republicans, want to present different versions of what we saw. Mm -hmm. uh, the reports are hundreds of pages long. And because they've just come out, I have not managed to read all of them carefully yet. But one of the remarkable things about them so far is even the Republican report paints a picture on which the president, through surrogates like Rudy Giuliani, was engaged in activity that really should not have been happening and that is surely got to be impeachable. So so one of the things that I think is really interesting about this process is the shifting narrative that comes from the president's defenders. At first there was there was no quid pro quo. This is not what it looks like. Then there was, well, it's a little maybe what it what it looks like, but that doesn't rise to the level of an impeachable offense. Now it seems that what they're saying is, yes, the, the president did these things, but they're actually okay. And, and I think one of the reasons that that's an effective, um, an effective tactic is this confusion about what impeachment is. What is an impeachable offense? The Constitution says bribery. It says treason, and then it says high crimes and misdemeanors. I, I want to spend a little time with you talking about that definition in the Constitution and how it should be interpreted, because I think a lot of people don't really understand that phrase. Sure. So let's do that. And then I'd like to suggest also another reason why I think the president's defenders are defending in the way they are. Um, High crimes and misdemeanors is the Constitution's umbrella term for things that warrant removing an office holder from office that are not the specific offenses of treason and bribery. Um, at the Constitutional Convention, there was some conversation about what exactly should render an officer impeachable. And treason was a pretty easy call. That is to say, if the office holder is working for an enemy of the United States, not for the United States, you know, that person's got to be out of here. Bribery is also a pretty easy call, right? If the person is working just for himself mm -hmm. and you know, using the power of the government to enrich himself rather than in the public interest, that too, right, that person has got to be out of here. But the founders also had the sense, and wisely, that there would be lots of other reasons that would be reasons why it would not be tolerable for someone to remain in office that might not be captured within the specific offenses of treason and bribery, because there are more than two ways to subvert a constitution. 
Um, and if you tried to make a list of specific ways in which a constitutional system could be subverted, you would always leave something off. You can't you know, foresee every way in which someone tries to break the machine. So they wrote the phrase high crimes and misdemeanors, right, other high crimes and misdemeanors, to indicate there are also other things for which a person should be impeachable. We're not going to try to write a complete list of what they are. We're going to signal that they should be serious offenses, right, high crimes and misdemeanors, not just uh, petty offenses, not just because we don't impeach people for jaywalking. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, we don't even impeach people you know, for like filing their taxes late. Um, we certainly don't impeach people because we have policy disagreements with them. That's what elections are for. But if an officer is doing things that are fundamentally contrary to the constitutional system, that there has to be a way to remove that person. That's what high crimes and misdemeanors means has been used in the past, uh, for example, um, in, uh, in President Nixon's case. President Nixon had impeachment proceedings commenced against him because uh, people working for him broke into the headquarters of his political opponents and stole their files. Mm-hmm. And then the president, using his law enforcement power, directed people in federal law enforcement to cover it up. That's deeply corrupt. And it's the, it's the kind of thing that a democratic system, small d democratic system, right, a system with democratic elections, can't tolerate. Right. You can't have the people in power uh, using their law enforcement power to raid the people who are running against them in elections and then cover it up. It's not treason. The president's political enemies weren't a foreign, he wasn't working for a foreign country. It's not bribery. The president you know, wasn't taking money from anyone or asking for favors for anyone. But it was certainly a high crime and misdemeanor. It was behavior that is fundamentally contrary to how this system is supposed to work. And um, the House of Representatives in Nixon's case also vote, well, also proposed, um, they didn't actually do it in the end because the president just resigned when he saw it coming. Mm-hmm. Um, but they also proposed an article of impeachment on obstruction of justice, that is to say on the president's efforts to prevent the investigation itself from going forward. That, too, uh, was presented as an impeachable offense. In the present situation, what the president has done is to use the power of his office in foreign affairs to contravene what Congress has decided the national security interests of the United States required, right? Because remember, Ukraine is our ally. Ukraine is a frontline allied state between Russia, which is an adversary to the United States, and Western Europe, which is composed of American allies. And the defense of the Ukraine is understood to be a bulwark against Russian influence into Western Europe. That's why Congress has approved military aid to Ukraine, and Ukraine needs it. By holding that aid hostage to his own effort to make his domestic political enemies look bad, the president was using his foreign affairs power in a corrupt way against the national interests of the United States as determined by Congress. Mm -hmm. 
And worst of all, I mean, I, that, that would be impeachable already. Worse yet, the attempt, as in Nixon's case, is to corrupt the system of elections. It's to use the president's power in a corrupt way to distort how the election for the president's own re-election will go. That's particularly dangerous and has to be impeachable because elections are the system's normal mechanism for correcting bad behavior by office holders, right? How, how are we supposed to deal with bad behavior by office holders in this country? We're supposed to vote them out. The problem is, what happens when the bad behavior by the office holder is something that renders the mechanism of election unreliable as a way to police their behavior, right? So, so take, the, take the simple case. Um, the office holder is stuffing the ballot box. You can't say, look, that seems like bad behavior, but we're going to let the people decide in an election whether he should be removed for it. No, you can't do that. The whole point is he stuffed the ballot box. Right? You can't trust the election to do that. The founders at the Constitutional Convention, James Madison in particular, talked about the need to be able to replace a president between elections precisely because there could be circumstances where the election is no longer an adequate check. And that's a situation like the one we have now, and a further reason why the president's behavior is especially impeachable. Yeah. The, the, the other thing that I think is worth noting about what you mentioned is the, the, the shifting defenses, um, no, he didn't, uh, maybe he didn't, yes, he did, but it's okay. Um, it, it, it reminds me a lot, actually, if, 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 um, if you remember the movie A Few Good Men. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, the, the idea is that um, Jack Nicholson plays a Marine colonel who's accused, right, of doing something that breaks the rules. And for a long time, there's stonewalling. But in the end, his defense is, of course I did that, right? I wanted to do that. That's how I do things. That's really what's going on here. Um, in the, this is the president's, this is the way this president operates. He acts in his own interests. He's not confined by rules. He tells lies all the time. And we've gotten to a point where the people defending him have come to the same point. Um, they will not be confined by truth in the way that the person they're protecting is not confined by truth. And in the end, right, they're also just willing to say, uh, yes, we did it, because they've lost sight of the fact that the behavior is itself not acceptable. Yeah. Yeah, uh, we are getting ready to rejoin the impeachment hearings in the House of Representatives today. The House Judiciary Committee committee is going to interview law professors and constitutional experts about what the legal grounds for impeachment look like. You can join us for NPR's live coverage of hearings this morning at ten here on WDET. Right now, my guest is Richard Primus, a constitutional law professor and historian at the University of Michigan Law School. We are talking about what impeachment is and what it is not. What does the Constitution say about it? What does the political process have to say about what impeachment is and what it is not? We want to hear from you as well. Are you convinced at this point that President Trump has done something that warrants impeachment? Tell us why 
or why not? When do you think you made up your mind on that question? Was it before all of this started or was it during the testimony that we've heard over the last few weeks from people who were involved with this phone call between President Trump and the president of Ukraine? Uh, What do you think uh, the president would need to do to uh, convince Or what do you think Democrats would need to do to convince enough Republicans in the Senate that the president should be removed from office? What's the threshold in your mind? As always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll try to work you into the conversation. Uh, Richard, before we get to listeners, um, I, I want you to talk a little about whether... Uh, and this is a political question, not a constitutional one, have Democrats made it harder for people to reach uh, a reasoned conclusion about the facts that we have in front of us by talking as long as they did about impeachment before? If we go back to last year, the the, the president's uh, midterm year, Uh, in office, we were talking about impeachment. If we go back to 2017, the very first year he was in office, there was a lot of talk about impeachment. And I think one of the things that I've heard from some Republicans is, well, this is just the latest thing that they think they can get uh, against this president to overturn the results of the election. Uh, Did Democrats make a mistake by invoking this word too early? No, I, I don't. I don't think so. I think there are two really important things to keep in mind here. Um, the first is about the idea that impeachment overturns an election. Um, that's a canard. That's the thing that people say that makes no sense. If the president were to be impeached and removed, it's not like Hillary Clinton becomes president. <laughs> right? um, it's not like all the changes that President Trump has pushed through the tax code go away. Um, it's not like all the effects on the environment that have come about as a result of changes in the environmental regulations get reversed. It's not like all the judges that President Trump has appointed you know, go away and we get the judges that Hillary Clinton would have appointed. So all that happens is Mike Pence becomes president. Um, that's, so it's, it's not in any way about reversing an election. Mm-hmm. I think to the, the other thing is, I think part of what is weird about the present circumstance is that we think of impeachment as something that would be a hard question. Presidents don't usually behave impeachably. Presidents, whether you voted for them or not, are usually honorable patriots trying to do the right thing. Um, And that means that if something impeachable happens, uh, it's going to be unusual, it's Probably it's not going to be a pervasive feature of the administration. It pro- might be something that people could argue about. Um, there have, as far as I can think of, there's probably really only been one time in history that it's really clear to me that a president behaved impeachably, and that, and that was Nixon's case. You can make arguments about other things, but, but that's about all. Part of what's disorienting about the Trump administration is he is impeachable for so many separate reasons. And that was true from the very beginning. So, for example, the president is financially corrupt. The president, from the very beginning, has been using his office 
to enrich himself personally. Right? He hasn't divested from his assets in the way that other presidents have. His presidency drives business to his hotels and those sorts of things. Th- that is unconstitutional under the Emoluments Clause, especially to the extent that it's about um, money driven by the representatives of foreign governments. Um, that would be a basis for impeachment all by itself. And that was going on from the very beginning. It seems that you know, on a regular basis, the president does something that ought to be impeachable. And the reason that people who would, well, in any presidency in the modern times, something like 15 to 20 percent of the public always thinks the president is impeachable. That's just noise, right? But responsible people don't usually say that. The reason that responsible people have talked about this president is impeachable from the beginning is that this president has not been like other presidents. This president doesn't show respect for the rules and norms that other presidents of both parties have shown respect for, which means he's done many different things that have been impeachable from the beginning. And anyone who's answering the question in a clear-eyed way from the beginning about whether the president's behavior is behavior that should get a president impeached would have said yes. It didn't happen in the beginning because, for one thing, the House of Representatives, which has to initiate the process, was controlled by the president's own party. And it's very, very difficult to get a political party to impeach a president of its own party, no matter how badly the president behaves. But it's not that Democrats um, reached for impeachment too early. The president was impeachable in plain sight for a long time. And the present uh, process, which got going because of the Ukraine problem, was simply the biggest, most dangerous thing that finally pushed them over the edge from saying, look, the president is impeachable, but we're not sure it's worth it, to saying, yeah, we really can't justify not proceeding on an impeachment Yeah, we have to step in. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Richard Primus about what impeachment is and what impeachment isn't, and whether President Donald Trump has reached that threshold according to the Constitution. And we are going to get to your calls. Daniel in Detroit, James in Shelby Township, Abdul in Fraser, David in Southfield. We will hear from you next as well. If you want to join them on the phones, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phone. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Thirty-one minutes before the House Judiciary Committee will interview law professors and constitutional experts about the legal grounds for impeachment. You can join us for NPR's live coverage of those hearings this morning at 10 here on WDET. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you have joined. I've got Richard Primus, a constitutional law professor and historian at the University of Michigan Law School, with us today to talk about that question of what is impeachable, what should be impeachable uh, under the Constitution and according to the political process. Of course, we want to hear from you. 313-577-1019 is the number 
on the phones. Uh, I want to read a couple of Twitter comments before we get to listeners on the phones. Uh, Emmy on Twitter says, of course, the president has met that minimum. Uh, Bare minimum here is obstruction. Cohen's co-conspirator, a.k.a. individual number one, is another. Getting assistance from Russia in 2016 is another. Trying to get Ukraine and China to interfere in 2020 is another. Emoluments is another. Emmy has a long list of things she thinks the president has done that would merit impeachment. Todd on Twitter says, uh, I believe the president became impeachable when he stood on the South Lawn and requested China to look into the Bidens. Now more and more information has come forward. I truly feel he needs to be impeached at this point. Rhonda on Twitter says, I was convinced when he admitted to it on television. That belief was solidified by the hearings. Let's go to the phones here. Uh, Daniel. Daniel in Detroit, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me on again. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I'm really interested in the Hunter Biden uh, aspect of this whole thing that's going on. Has there been an investigation? Hunter Biden went on national television and said that if his his father is elected president, that he will not behave like this anymore. Mm. So he thought it was wrong. Maybe it's not legally wrong, but what happened there? Now, I'm not a Trump supporter. I wouldn't vote for the man ever, but I'm very interested to find out, is there a backstory here? And the other, I got another point here, is the steadfast position from the Republican Party, I think, is fueled by the campaign contributions that are coming into their pockets and into their bank accounts. You know, the, the, the party that's in power that, that, can, that can deliver favors is going to receive more money. Some of these people that are speaking out uh, for Donald Trump on his behalf from the Republican Party were never Trumpers, mm. were people that said nasty things about him before. Now they're standing up saying he's a great guy and he did nothing wrong. Right. It's because of the money, yeah. the money in politics. Until we get that out of Washington... We're going to continue to have these bitter, partisan fights, and we really need to work towards that. Daniel, I I really appreciate the call uh, and the comments. Let's go to David in Southfield, who has a kind of similar point. David, go ahead. My concern is that uh, there's a problem that we're judging motives, and I'm not so sure how clear that is in determining right or wrong here, because... Uh, there's the motive of the president and doing what he did, and then there's the motive of the Congress for the impeachment. The motive of the president in terms of investigating may have been admirable in order to find corruption. On the other hand, the motive of the, of the Congress might be admirable to find something wrong with the president. On the other hand, there may be something not good about the president motivating uh, the president's motives to find something wrong in order to get some benefit politically, but then there's also something wrong, uh, you know, possibly when we look at the Congress in terms of its political reasons um, for actually pursuing this, which they have a record of uh, for a long time, ever since the man got into office. So there's motives uh, become grounds for impeachment, and determining exactly what the motive is is dependent on how well one can talk. Yeah. Uh, and uh, David, I appreciate uh, your perspective as well. Uh, Richard, I want you to respond to what both yeah. callers are talking about, which is kind of a both sides-ism, right? Uh, Trump may be wrong, but 
the Democrats are doing things that don't make sense well, either. Yes and, no. and, yes, and Hunter Biden is in, you know, yes, uh, wrapped up in it. So there's no political party that I've ever been aware of, all of whose members always do the right thing all the time, right? That, that people are human. People make people do things they shouldn't. Um, here, let's, let's start with the, the point about motive, because it's important. Mm-hmm. It is surely true that a lot of what is at issue in the impeachment proceedings is about the president's motive. Law does that all the time. Um, if you're prosecuted for bribery, the prosecutor is going to try to prove to the jury something about what your motive was, what you intended to do. Right? This is true for most things that the law might try to prove about someone criminally. Um, it's tr- it is certainly true here, but it is not unusual to have to prove a motive. It's just normal. It's also um, often not obscure. There are times when it's hard to know what a person's motive is. There are times when it's really not as a matter of common sense to know what a person's motive is. Um, In the present case, there's really a whole lot of evidence um, about the president's motives. Um, One could say uh, that it is possible. It, it, it's always important to distinguish between saying it is possible that someone could have done this for a permissible motive and saying in this case it is plausible to think that the person did it for a permissible motive. So, yes, if you didn't know anything in particular about Ukraine and its particular history of corruption, and all you knew was that the President of the United States wanted someone to look into corruption in Ukraine, you could say, sure, it's possible that he's doing that because he's interested in rooting out corruption. But if you understood the particulars of the Ukraine situation and understood who the corruption was actually practiced by, and that the President is intervening on behalf of those people, and against the people who were fighting the corruption, and that of all the countries in the world where corruption is a problem, the president has been interested only in this one and only where it might make his political rival look bad, Mm -hmm. you have to think, "Mm." you kind of have to be a little naive to imagine that that the president here is not interested in the self-serving end and is really just interested in a general way in corruption. So, and this, I think, in some ways goes to your, your both sidesism concern. This is about motive has become something that people say when they want to say, well, who knows really who's right, right and who's wrong here, <laughs> right? But sometimes, right, in fact, every day we know what people's motives are around us. And sometimes we know that people have behaved badly. Part of what's so confusing about the Trump era to a lot of people is the president behaves badly, openly, all the time. And it's hard to get our heads around that fact, right? So we try to come up with reasons why maybe it isn't actually so bad. But really, right, he's just behaving badly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, thanks uh, very much for those calls and those those points. I think those are really interesting reactions to the things that we're seeing. Uh, let's go to James in Shelby Township. James, welcome yeah, to the I show. Absolutely, absolutely do not believe uh, Donald Trump is guilty and uh, it is, is not impeachable. I heard what your speaker said. You said it's about his money. Well, you know, Hillary and Bill used their, uh, their positions to, to get millions 
in their in their um, in their coffers because she was the Secretary of State. Um, President Trump does not take a salary, um, which is like five hundred thousand dollars a year. Um, I, I think it's before he even got got elected, before he ever got. Um, he, he, they were the Democrats were wanting to impeach him. Hmm. Look at the day after he got elected, and the, um, the, uh, the all those women out there, and all the things that they said about him. I think it's terrible. He's been treated and misabused, abused, and I, I think it's time for these people to take their lunch and go home. Hmm. So, so James, I'm I'm curious. The president says he did this. That that to you doesn't matter. Well, you know, if there was corruption, and he says we need to investigate corruption, uh, it is in, in his um, his responsibility as president and dispersing um, uh, federal aid uh, federal aid the way he does. It, he should be looking into corruption. Okay. I, I appreciate your perspective, James. I really, uh, I, I'm glad you called. Uh, Richard, we've only got about a minute and a half left, but but respond to what James is saying. Sure. Well, I would encourage James and anyone else, really, you know, not to take my word for anything, but to read the record um, and to listen to the testimony. Um, the testimony that was given in front of the uh, House committee is available. Um, one really good source is something called the Lawfare Podcast, which strips out all of the your posturing and theatrics and just delivers the substance of the questions and answers in a really good way. Um, I've been listening to it at the gym. Uh, I think if you really want to inform yourself, you should listen to the testimony directly. Mm-hmm. You can read the House report that's out yesterday. It's available on the Internet. Right? And you know, just try to read and listen with an open mind, and come to the conclusions that you will come to. Um, we will, we as a country, will come through all of this best if people think clearly about the facts and look at the facts in the record. And that's what I would encourage people to do. Okay. Richard Primus, constitutional law professor and historian at the University of Michigan Law School. It is always really great to have you with us for these conversations. Thanks for stopping by. Happy to be here. Yeah. Up next, we're going to have a conversation about the big problem of college dropouts and what one author is calling a scandal. Stay with us on Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Higher ed has a lot of issues these days, and one of the biggest is affordability. But today, we want to take a look at a lesser-known problem in the world of college academia, and that is the number of students who begin college but drop out and never graduate. This issue ends up being connected to affordability as students leave school with no degree, lots of student debt, and an even bleaker economic outlook than they had before they started college. And, of course, this is especially true for students of color. Joining us now to delve into this issue, which which he lays out in his book, The College Dropout Scandal, is author, professor, and writer David Kerp. David, welcome to Detroit Today. It's great to be here. Yeah. So your book, which came out in August, is titled The College Dropout Scandal. 
Let's start by discussing that word, scandal. What is the scandal here as you see it? Well, you start with the figures that you, that you gave us, which is that half the kids who go to public universities, who start public universities, emerge without a degree. And for those students, as you described, they're in, they're in de- their lives are changed. Not only are they in debt, they're going to have a harder time getting a job. They're more likely to wind up bankruptcy. They're less likely to get involved civically. This is a, a lifelong impact. So that's the problem. The, the good news is that we know how to dramatically move the needle on graduation rates. And indeed, I'm sure we'll talk about this. Wayne State is one of those places that has done brilliantly and showed the way in this area. Hmm. We know how to do it. And that's a great example. And the dropout rate hasn't budged, which means schools aren't doing it which means it's a scandal for which nobody is accountable. Yeah. Nobody loses their job because of dropout rates. So, so talk about the major obstacles that lead students to drop out of college. I know that finances, of course, are a big part of that. People feel like they can't afford to stay and graduate. But there are some other things as well that you talk about in your book. Yeah, money matters, but it's important to know that two colleges that admit exactly the same kind of students on paper have very, very different graduation rates. And that two colleges with the same graduation rate are going to have very, very different minority graduation rates. So there will be a gap of zero in some places. Minority students actually graduate at a higher rate. At other places, the gap is 20, 30, 40 percent. Um, so that's you know, that's a huge problem in this area. Why do they drop out? Ultimately, there's a one-liner to describe the book. They drop out because they don't feel like they're members of a community that actually takes them seriously, that actually respects them as members of the community. They're, they think of themselves as really as check-writing machines who, for whom the university is a, is a distant force, cares only about the money they produce, and their professors aren't accessible, and they haven't gotten any support. And if they they run into academic problems or emotional problems. There's no counselor for them. Many schools have a counselor for every thousand students. So realistically, nobody for them to talk to about this. And that's what happens. They fall behind. Nobody pays attention and they leave. And, and talk about the importance of that dynamic when you are referring to first generation students, people whose parents did not go to college or people who are part of uh, minority, ethnic minority uh, communities who find themselves in extreme minorities often on college campuses. This affects them really differently. Yeah, let's, let's, it's a great question. Let's start with us. Uh, I was a first-gen college student, but otherwise uh, don't want to put myself in that category. When I showed up in college, I was scared to death. I was away from home. I was living in a different world. Um, I didn't have the kind of support that I would have wanted. I was depressed. I thought about leaving. Now, if you add to that the, the problems that a poor kid or a minority kid face, they've got nobody to guide them, nobody to help them, nobody to support them. They've got to fill out a financial aid application, the federal FAFSA form. They've got to do it on their own because they don't have help. Um, and once they're in school, you know, they, they, if they don't have somebody to turn to, there really is nobody at home who, it's not as though people don't care. It's not as though parents aren't interested. They just don't have the knowledge to be able to be useful to them. And, and it strikes, and again, yeah, go ahead. This is what, this is, this is, this really is where colleges come in because they, they know this. They can compensate for this in ways that make a world of difference. It, it also strikes me that some of the things that we're seeing go on 
in our society more generally are exacerbating this. So the the sort of super kids, I guess you might call them, who who show up on college campuses, who are who are immensely prepared for all of the experience, not just the academics, but the sort of cultural confines of campuses, the the, the life that students live. Uh, the, the number of those kids who exist, the number of those kids who, who show up uh, on college campuses each fall is swelling, is growing in, in, in enormous ways. That seems to make the difference between them and kids who may be first gen or uh, ethnic minorities. Uh, it, it makes that gap even more noticeable and it makes the dynamic more intense. No, indeed, there is a huge gap between the students you're describing. Um, you know, the students with helicopter parents who show up when there is the slightest bit of trouble for their for their son or daughter on the on the campus, who've been to use the words that one student's happy to use, that they've been coddled um, along the way. Um, and the gap between that and the students I'm describing is immense. Having said that, again, the point I want to underscore is that you have colleges that have figured out, they're not going to compensate entirely for that. They're not going to be super mom or super dad. But I'll tell you, the counselors, students that I've talked to particularly attach themselves to counselors and advisors. They're the big sisters, the big brothers. It's like the mom, I, you know, it's like having a second mom. Those people are crucial um, in the lives of these students. Having, you know, a, a math course, an introductory math course that isn't terrifying. Again, I think about myself. I was absolutely over my head floundering in math. You, you can rewrite the script for math, not require um, college algebra, which none of us, I think, are going to make use of unless we're in a STEM field. <laughs> you do lots of things to make the life of students a whole lot better. They don't have, it's lovely if they have the kind of background you described, but it's not necessary to succeed. Hmm. Uh, you do talk about Wayne State University uh, in your book, and you hold them up as an example of a university that seems to get it and is trying to fix this problem. Now, of course, we should say up front that the stats at Wayne are nothing to, to be uh, happy or, or proud of, but in your estimation, uh, their approach to this is pushing them in the right direction. Well, it's interesting. Wayne is a great story. And by the way, I want to say something about Western Michigan while I'm here because it turns out to be my other hero institution. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I, when I first got into this, Wayne was a disaster. Uh, and I write about Georgia State University. It has the same admissions criteria policy as Wayne does. It has a, an even larger proportion of African-American students. Its graduation rate was 30% higher than Wayne's. I mean, that, so that was the piece I was going to write. It's the contrast between two schools, same admissions criteria, hugely different rates. And Wayne State has closed the gap. And they've done it because they took a leaf out of the book of Georgia State. And what does that mean? For starters, they brought in a president and a provost who have made student success their number one priority. That is not true in lots of places where the number one priority is moving up the U.S. News and World Report list or raising money or building a new football stadium or making your lumps happier, all those kinds of things. They bring in these folks, and then they do a kind of mapping of the college. What are the roadblocks to graduation from the day students are admitted to the day they walk out the door? they got problems at the end. They, they, they leave as seniors because they're short of maybe $1,000. What can we do about that? They come in. They're not well prepared. They don't have a feeling about college, as we've talked about before. What can we, the institution, do about that? And, and they have their – absolutely. They would be the first to tell you they're not done. 
This is a long, long path to be on. And there's a, they bump into a limit, which is the one you mentioned earlier. It's the limit of money. But they, they, they can get up to a 75 or 80 percent graduation rate, and they know it. And they can close the gap a whole lot more because they're, they're a huge problem is the gap between minority rates and overall graduation rates. They've done, they've done much better than they were doing in the past, but there's a lot of work to be done. Mm. And my can guess, I say a word about Western Michigan? Yeah, absolutely. Wanna... No, no, go right ahead. Yeah. So, you know, so, so I was asked actually by, by someone in a, in a phone call from Michigan, what do you know about foster kids and how well they do? And I knew nothing. I was kind of embarrassed. Well, you take all those groups, you know, poor kids, minority kids, first-gen kids, and you put them on steroids. And you get foster kids. I mean, they got everything going against them, right? And their overall graduation rate is is figured at between ten percent and two percent, two percent. Okay, um, Western Michigan overall graduation rate for all students is fifty-two percent. Not brilliant, not far from the average, far from brilliant. But the graduation rate for foster kids is forty-two percent, two percent. Versus 42%. Mm. What did they do? They personalized their education. They, they, they smothered them in support. They made it financially feasible to go to college. And they gave them lots of advising and counseling and, and support from faculty. And, you know, that's, that's, a huge, that's a huge story, huge undertold story. Mm. Both of those schools really deserve to be called out for doing great things. Mm. It also seems to me, and I, I have some familiarity, familiarity with this, uh, through uh, someone I know quite well who works on a scholarship at the University of Michigan that is intended for first-gen students, uh, but that's funded by a donor. It, it strikes me that, that there's interest now outside the university apparatus, for instance, that, uh, that also is aimed at supporting these kinds of programs. Absolutely. The happiest moment that I've had in this in working on this book, I'm, I'm also a, a New York Times contributing writer, and I wrote about a program in the City University of New York that had doubled graduation rates. And I, I don't want to be tiresome to, by repeating the, the message, but the message was financial support, well-structured curriculum, and lots of you know, and lots of help from counselors and advisors. So the university gets a phone call from a wealthy donor and says, "How much would it cost to put through a cohort of your students?" And the answer came back $4 million. And a few days later, the university got a call. To whom do I write out the check? Mm. That's wonderful. And mm. that's the kind of story that I hope we hear more of because, you know, I've, I've urged potential donors not to focus. I love small liberal arts colleges. I went to one of those. And I, you know, elite universities are fine. They don't need your money. I mean, Harvard has an endowment bigger than Pan- the, the GNP of, of the country of Panama. does not need your money. But the schools that do... Yeah, and the kids that do are are substantial in number. There are lots of good ways to invest money, not just in individual kids, but in boosting the numbers of kids who get to college and particularly who get through college. Mm. It's not a story about access. We all the focus is on access. It's a story about success. Well, and support, right? I mean, this idea that, yeah, that exactly. you have to have that support exactly. in order for the success exactly. to I mean, to the, the metric really is, yeah, I mean, it's not just getting kids into college. What I really mean by that. It's not just getting kids into college. It's doing what you can to get kids through college. So, so I also want to ask you about the conversation that seems to be unfolding about the idea of college being unnecessary. In other words, that 
people who go to vocational schools, people who pursue, pursue trade careers and other alternative post-high school career paths are doing as well, quote unquote, as people who graduate from college. Is How do you answer that sort of, uh, uh, I guess, directive about how we deal with this yeah. problem of dropouts and student debt and all those other things? I th- so it's a, real, it's a really important point. P- there are people... You know, I'm, I get asked the question, maybe those kids shouldn't have gone to college. Well, you know, that's often not the case, but sometimes it is. Sometimes there are, there are going to be students who'd be a whole lot better off in the trades, and indeed they'll make a lot of money. We're running out of electricians and plumbers and, and, and carpenters in the society, and those, to say nothing of the, of the more high-tech um, hands-on fields, and those are programs to which technical schools and community colleges can prepare students. Still, the overall data, you know, tells you that, you know, if you're in doubt, you know, the average college grad has a premium lifetime income of a million dollars compared to somebody who just goes to high school and a premium of $500,000 compared to somebody who goes to community college. Um, So if you're playing the averages, those are the numbers. But again, I want to underscore the, the wisdom of the point of the critics. Don't push kids who don't want to go to college into it just because. There are other things they can do, and there are other ways of living a satisfactory, a happy life and a financially successful life. So I also want to look ahead to next year when we will elect a new president. And several candidates have talked about this idea of getting rid of all the student loan debt. How do you think that would change the landscape for these students, those who drop out and those who get their degrees? If we removed finance from the picture, would the numbers get better? So it's it's fascinating. This turns out to be <laughs> the the college debt story is reasonably complicated. But here's the story from yesterday's newspaper. You know who's taking out the biggest college debt? Wealthy kids, hmm. not poor kids. Wealthy kids. If you look at the average debt that a poor kid graduates from college, it's way lower than a middle class or upper class kid. And even for the average student who's in debt, they they leave with twenty nine thousand. They graduate with twenty nine thousand dollars in debt. Now that's not a trivial sum. But it's about what it would cost you to, you know, to buy a decent automobile in Detroit. Uh, so, and then paying off everybody's debt. I mean, who's who's got the debt? I mean, somebody who goes to the University of Michigan Law School is probably one hundred and fifty thousand dollars in debt. Am I really worried about making sure that a lawyer gets a great head start in life or a hmm. business exec? I don't think so. And those, that's where the big debt numbers come from. It's graduate programs. And some of those are scandals. The University of Southern California charges $150,000 to get a degree in social work. Wow. Social work. Where the average salary is $50,000 a year. That's a scandal. But, no, I think, I think you want to target debt support for, for starters. You want, to, you want to make sure that students who are in deep, deep trouble can include college debt as part of what their, their debt is when they're declaring bankruptcy. Why, dis, why distinguish college debt from other things? You want to get them on a plan to pay off their, their money before they get into this kind of trouble. That isn't being done. It's not a headline. That's not headline making. But yeah. that's really what we ought to be doing. Yeah. David Kerp author of The College Dropout Scandal. It was really great to have you with us here on Detroit Today. Thanks it was a pleasure. Here. Great great conversation. Yes. Take care. Thank you. Also, remember, you can join me for a screening of a movie called Unlikely, 
the story of five students who are fighting for a second chance at higher education opportunity. Uh, we're going to show that film at 7 on December 11th at Cinema Detroit. It will be followed by a discussion that I will moderate about the stories, strategies, and solutions featured in the film. You can find more info at WDET.org. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.